Hey ladies, here to do chapter 12. It's titled, Less Important, I Choose to Serve God and Others. Um, at the beginning of the chapter on page 144, there are some bulleted points like usual. It says, why don't they ever listen to me? But I was right. You don't care about me. I will prove them wrong. None of this is my fault. Doesn't anyone care about my needs? I've got this. So, chapter 12. Not long ago, I snapped at one of my if-gathering colleagues. Worse still, this was a new coworker, someone who doesn't yet know me and thus doesn't know that I'm generally not a snappy person. Worst of all, I didn't apologize, at least not at first. I won't go into detail about what she did that catalyzed my, let's say, passionate response, but I reacted with such agitation, such animation, such temper that I completely shut her down. I saw that I'd shut her down. Only an imbecile wouldn't have seen or noticed that. But I, but did I remedy the situation by asking for forgiveness? Nope. I went on with my day. Just a little side note. If you want to intern at If Gathering, please don't let this incident discourage you from applying. 99% of the time, I'm really, really nice. Later that afternoon, after I left the office, I thought about calling this team, this new team member to apologize. But then my train of thought embarked on a journey of self-justification. Maybe it was no big deal to her. She's probably already moved on. Maybe by calling and drawing attention to my little oops, I'll be stirring things up. I thought about how I justified in my reaction because my perspective had been so far off base. I also thought about how I tried, how t- oh, how tired and I was and how hungry I was and how I deserved a little grace. Yes, I felt sure that if she knew all the stress I was under, she'd want to give me grace. So I gave myself grace. Had I been paying closer attention, I would have recognized the lie that my self-esteem is a valid guide for for navigating life. Maybe you can relate. We compare and contrast, justify and judge, and spend a ridiculous amount of time complicating our identity and place in the world. Maybe this is why the Apostle Paul cautioned us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Instead, we're to honor one another above ourselves. But depending, oh, but developing such an approach to life requires us to deliberately and repeatedly interrupt the natural trajectory of our thoughts. One of my favorite thinkers on the Christ-following life is that the 19th century pastor and prolific writer Andrew Murray. One of his best-known books is on the subject of humility. In fact, that's the title of the book, Humility. Not very creative, but sometimes plain works best. In his book, Murray wrote at length about the nuances of considering others more significantly than, one, than yourselves, referring to such humility in lofty terms like participation in the life of Jesus and the place of entire dependence on God and on the only soil in which grace is root and the dep- disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust and our redemption, and our Savior. He also said, the question is often asked, how can we count ourselves better than ourselves? Oh, how can we count others better than ourselves when we see that they are far below us in wisdom and in holiness, in natural gifts, or in grace received?
Now, see, this is why I love Andrew Murray. He knew exactly how our minds work against us, and he had the courage to put our true thoughts into words. Pride says he's the one who's wrong. Her overreaction is what caused this mess. I am not that bad. My thought about snapping at my colleague was it wasn't that big of a deal. You probably know where this story is going. For the next 24 hours, a passage from scripture kept coming to mind. Whenever my mouth gets me into trouble, in fact, I tend to think of this passage in 1 Peter 2. The context is all about how we should live as God's chosen special people. And the short answer is that we're to follow the example of Jesus. But I'm guessing you knew that. Here's where it gets complicated, at least for me. Jesus, who came to earth from heaven and took up a form of human body, lived his life flawlessly and was declared by God to be sinless in the end. This includes the tense confrontation with the religion leaders who decided he would be killed on a Roman cross. This, for a man, according to verse 22, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So Jesus found himself standing before powerful men, men who held in their hands the power to send him to his death. They were questioning him and asking him, asking him to plead his case. Jesus faced a key decision. How would he respond? The answer convicts me every time. When he was revived, verse 23 says, He did not revival in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Ugh. Jesus did nothing wrong and held his tongue when falsely accused. My teammate sort of kind of maybe misspoke and I lashed out in response. Oops, sorry about that. I'm sure you could hear uh, the phone call coming through. Um, Okay, on page 48. The way of humility. We've been talking for several chapters now about various choices we can, we can make when confronted with toxic thought patterns, about different thoughts we can choose to think, thoughts that reflect the mind of Christ. When we're tempted, for example, to use busyness to distract ourselves from dealing with the truth, we can choose instead to be still in the presence of God. When our minds are consumed with anxiety and doubts and fears, we can choose instead to remember what's true about God. We can think about his nearness, we can think about his goodness, we can think about his provision, we can think about his love. When we're tempted to believe we're all alone in this world, we can choose instead the thought, (coughs) the spirit of God lives inside me, and because of that I'm never alone. There are people who love me, who want to be with me. I can reach out to them instead of sitting here, stuck. When we're tempted to think cynical thoughts, that life is worthless, that our efforts are pointless, that nothing matters in the end, that no one can be trusted, that we can instead, that we can choose instead to be open ourselves up around to the world around us, taking delight in God himself, and he has done that for us. There are all choices that we can make to reconfigure our thinking patterns and help ourselves become who we long to be. This brings us to our fifth weapon for shifting our harmful patterns of thinking, humility. One of the enemies of our minds, especially rampant in this generation, is the inflated view of self being handed to us over all of social media, in the shows, movies we watch, even in self-help books we read. We're fed a 
continuous message of how much we matter and how very important we are. And we believe every word of the deceiver. We can make a different choice. When the enemy invites us to taste the fruit of the self-importance and be like God, we can choose instead to take up our cross and follow Jesus, knowing that our identity is anchored in him alone. But everything in our human nature will fight against it. The lie, the more self-esteem I have, the better life will go for me. The truth, the more I choose God and others over myself, the more joyful I will be. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ who being in very nature being in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on the cross i choose to serve god and others over serving myself on page 150, there is the I have a choice diagram where it starts at emotion and goes down to consequence. Or on the other column, starts at emotion and goes up to consequence. I recently posted on Instagram this quote often attributed to Andrew Murray. Humility is perfect quietness of the heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have blessed home in the Lord where I go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and am at peace as in deep sea calmness when all around and above is trouble. The comments in response to that post were priceless. Wow, this is difficult. How rare. Whoa, that hurts. Humility is impossibly opposite of the ways of the world. Our spinning thoughts can hardly comprehend being at rest instead of jockeying for approval. Yet, interestingly enough, we weren't built to be the center of our own worlds. Self-importance can mess with those beautiful mirror neurons I told you a few chapters ago. Do you remember what they do? They help us emphasize with others and connect on a viscous viscaral, vast, I don't know, level. When we are puffed up with thoughts on how important we are, our mere neurons are impaired. That's why in my spiraling of self-importance, truly understanding my co-worker's point of view was nearly impossible. Something less than great. The Apostle Paul embodied the idea of being at rest when being blamed or despised. While imprisoned, most likely in a house arrest, situation wondering whether he would be executed he declared his central desire to rejoice to praise god to spread the good news wherever he was whatever gain i had i counted as a loss for the sake of christ he said indeed i count everything as a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing jesus christ my lord for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteous of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by many means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul possessed an incredible 
disregard for his losses and accomplishments alike. He disregarded the things that the rest of the world esteems. I mean, he even disregarded himself. He couldn't care less what happened to him, just as long as he could know Jesus better. In fact, those things the rest of us count as important? Rubbish, Paul said of them. I find these insights from Paul staggering, especially in our day and age. If I had to name the most destructive line of thinking in our 21st century culture, it's our quest to be great. We spend a lot of effort trying to become distinct, successful, smarter, stronger, thinner, great. We love being great. It's so great to be great. We want to be great as an accomplished and successful. Sure, we may couch it in acceptable terms like doing great things for the kingdom or making God's name famous, but somehow our thoughts subtly become centered not on him but on ourselves. How can we achieve our goals, realize our dreams, enlarge our influence, position ourselves for success? Let me tell you a quick story. For as long as I have known her, my friend Heather has been busting at the seams to use her gifts of writing and teaching. But for whatever reason, she won't go for it, despite many of us encouraging her because she is truly gifted to do this. Recently, we were on the phone catching up and she expressed some critical perspectives about other people who are running their races. There are people who both love people who are building and serving and risking their guts out. Now, why would my perfectly lovely, godly, creative friend be so critical? Because, kind of like, she's going to hate this. This grumpy, middle-aged men eating nachos in the stands while deciding how the Cowboys should have called the game to beat the Chiefs. She was in the stand eating nachos with no skin in the game. We spent a lot of time looking around at others. Not so we can encourage them in their growth but so we can figure out how we measure up we convince ourselves that god wants us to be amazing we are all about empowerment but lastly joy will come only when god is in the center not when i am empowered but when i rest in his power when our thoughts are consumed with ourselves we forget how very much we need jesus we buy the lie of self-empowerment we've got this We forget that we are called to take up our cross and follow him, to share his sufferings, and to live a life worthy of calling you have received. But completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every every effort to keep unity of the spirit through the bold of peace. I react unfairly to a coworker, and then I feel angst and guilty and mad. To make myself feel better, I stuff those feelings and just move on. Later, I felt guilty again, but instead of apologizing, I start listing the reasons I was right and she was wrong. Notice any trends in the lineity below? I feel angsty. I feel guilty. I feel mad. I stuff those emotions. I move on. I list reasons. I decide I am right. I, 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 I. I puffed up pride fills my senses and causes me to justify, defend, I'm abdicating responsibility and refusing to budge. I am the centerpiece in this little scenario, the one who has fractured the, the tie between my coworker and me. Humility, it just feels so difficult sometimes, you know? 
I am no better than a toddler who rather lose all his favorite things than say I'm sorry I was wrong. Then I remembered Jesus, guiltless and wrongfully accused, yet still completely humble of heart. Our friend the Apostle Paul pointed to Jesus as our guide for how to let go of greatness. In Philippians 2, he wrote, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. I choose humility. I'm going to stop there at the end of page 155, and we'll finish part 2 next time.